Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. It's my pleasure to introduce Anthony Eiton, MD, JD, and MPH, who is a senior vice president for healthy communities at the California Endowment, a private statewide health foundation whose mission is to expand access to affordable quality health care for underserved individuals and communities and to promote fundamental improvements in the health status of all Californians. Prior to that, Dr. Eitens served for seven years at the Alameda County Public Health Department as director and health officer, where he oversaw an agency with a budget of $112 million with a focus on preventing communicable disease outbreaks, reducing the burden of chronic disease and obesity, and managing the county's preparedness for biological terrorism. Dr. Eiton received his medical degree at Johns Hopkins Medical School and subsequently trained in internal medicine and preventive medicine at New York Hospital, Yale, and Berkeley, and is board certified in both specialties. Dr. Eiton also received a law degree and a master's of public health from the University of California, Berkeley, and is a member of the California Bar. He has worked as an HIV disability rights attorney at the Berkeley Community Law Center, a healthcare policy analyst with Consumers Union West Coast Regional Office, and as a physician advocate for the homeless at the San Francisco Public Health Department. His experience practicing both medicine and law independently has enabled him to blend both disciplines in the day-to-day practice of public health. Welcome, Dr. Eiden. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Patty. I'm assuming that this elaborate headset is, is working? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, so hi. Hi, everybody. It's, uh, it's nice to be here in these new digs. Um, and this is sort of a uh, follow-up to a presentation that happened about a year ago um, about building healthy communities, which is uh, a little bit of a unique approach to health. And so I want to I tell you what that is about and sort of some of the underlying principles behind it. And it takes a minute to understand why we do what we do the way we do. So, um, so bear with me. Um, so the California Endowment is a, um, well, the way I like to describe it, it's, a, it's like a private public health department. Um, we're the sort of the, um, when Blue Cross of California, the insurance company, decided it wanted to become a for-profit company after about 75 years of being a not-for-profit health insurer in California, um, it was mandated under law to disgorge its assets, it's a legal term, to disgorge its assets into a, a private charitable foundation. And so the California Endowment is that private charitable foundation. There's actually, for complicated technical reasons regarding uh, stock transfers, there are actually two foundations. There's the California Endowment and there's the California Healthcare Foundation uh, that you may have heard of that are the products of that uh, conversion. And so uh, in 2007, the California Endowment decided that it wanted to embark on a very different approach to getting at the fundamental health status of Californians, to try to make improvements in that health status because we had seen, I wasn't there at the time, but the endowment had seen that over the first 10 years of its existence, um, while it had put about a billion dollars into health improvement, some of the major measures of health status improvement hadn't really budged. In fact, some had gotten a little bit worse. So uh, the board got together and said, well, we, we need to do something more comprehensive. And that was the sort of the genesis of building healthy communities. And the goal with building healthy communities is to take that roughly a billion dollars over 10 years and invest in the so-called social determinants of health, those things that are non-medical drivers and shapers of health status, particularly for young children and families. And so that's what Building Healthy Communities is. I was brought in to run uh, the 14 places, 14 communities that are in 12 counties, I'll show you a map in a minute, um, that we made a commitment to invest in for a decade. 
And that commitment looks probably unlike anything you would expect a health foundation to do. Um, and I'll explain why. So I assume I can use this thing. So I will just use it. <laughs> so building healthy communities is um, its a, sometimes referred to as a place-based investment. I don't like the term place-based because it's, it's really too limiting. It's really a place-conscious investment. It's thinking about place as sort of the crucible where health is shaped and where life trajectories are forged. And it's thinking about, well, what are those factors in people's lives that shape their health? And the whole concept here, and sometimes it's easier to explain this to, to economists or even chemists, because the, the whole concept here is about balance. And many times in health, we think about silver bullets. We think about, you know, what is that one drug or what is that one behavior that can actually change our health? And the reality is that that is never the case. And health is really about the balance between risk and resources. And in environments, in communities, if you think about your own environment or your neighborhood, there are a series of risks and there's a series of resources. And for young children and families, particularly low-income young children and families, those risks and resources can have a profound impact on the life trajectories of people, and in a very predictable way. Okay, I'm going to cut to... The, so these are the 14 communities. They're all across the state. They represent two-thirds of California's populations in the 12 counties that are represented there. So this is a lot of people. Um, that are being essentially influenced by uh, this work. This is the bottom line. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Um, but for that billion dollars, uh, we achieved, actually as of today, which is only nine years in, over a thousand policy wins, policy systems changes, and tangible benefits in these areas. I'm going to explain to you and show you some examples of what those are. And they're across three basic domains in neighborhoods, which is one of the critical environments for young children and families trying to create healthy resources within those neighborhoods. Uh, within schools, which is the single most important modifiable social determinant of health, by far. It's more important than how much money you make. It's more important than how good your doctor is. Uh, education is the great protector when it comes to health. And, and then finally, in the series of systems we call prevention systems, which include the healthcare system, social services, um, and other human service systems. But first, I want to show you a movie. And uh, it saves me a lot of time, because uh, it's a four-minute uh, video that explains pretty much everything I'm going to say, uh, just, just in a much more entertaining way. What determines how long we'll live? Is it what we do? Is it who we are? Actually, when it comes to predicting how long you'll live, your zip code is more important than your genetic code. Here's how this works. Meet Deb and Maria. They both have jobs. They're around the same age, they're both married, and they both have two kids. Deb lives in A-Town, while Maria lives in Beeville, less than one mile away. They're similar in so many ways, but here's the thing. On average, residents of Beeville will die more than 15 years sooner than the residents of A-Town. Why? Because where you live is about more than just your address. It's about your opportunities. For example, Deb and Maria's access to healthy options is really different. In A-Town, Deb's family is surrounded by healthy food options, including farmer's markets, specialty shops, and grocery stores. The air in A-Town is cleaner and fresher, and there are lots of safe, clean parks where Deb can exercise and her children can play. A-Town has good public schools for Deb's kids and easy access to emergency and preventive health care. On the other hand, Beeville has broken, badly lit sidewalks, and the parks are unsafe. 
The air is filled with truck exhausts from the nearby highway. And for food options, Maria's only choices are Beeville's many liquor stores, fast food places, or convenience stores. The schools in Beeville are overcrowded and undersupported. And even if Maria can get her kids into better schools far away, she needs to figure out how to get them there without access to a car. So for Maria, having to juggle so much to find healthy options can be an overwhelming source of chronic stress, which is a serious health risk factor. In fact, for all the residents of Beeville, chronic stress drives health problems like obesity, diabetes, asthma, and heart disease. How did A-Town and Beeville get so different? Well, in many cases in cities and towns across California, the root cause was racial and economic discrimination. Over the generations, poor white people and people of color were pushed to less desirable parts of town. Where banks refused to lend money, businesses left, jobs too, schools declined, and the neighborhood crumbled. Everyone who could move away did. And what's more, when communities like A-Town and Beeville are so unequal, Beeville isn't the only one that suffers. Because it turns out that not only is your zip code a predictor of how long you'll live, so is what country you live in. Countries with the greatest income inequality have the lowest life expectancy. So even Americans like Deb, who are white, insured, college-educated, and upper-income, die younger than their peers in other countries. In fact, our life expectancy is 43rd in the world, and that number is slipping. In the end, our biggest health risk may actually be inequality, and extreme inequality hurts us all. So what do we do? Well, if we're all going to be healthier, we don't just need to help the folks in Beeville beat the odds. We need to change the odds for everyone. And that's what we're doing. There's a movement happening. We're Californians. We don't follow. We lead. We are building the power to make health happen in communities across the state. We are coming together to build one California, a smarter, more inclusive and equitable state that creates health and opportunity for all of us. Join us. To learn more, visit buildinghealthycommunities.org. Okay, so I'm done. Um, oops. So, so that's the setup, basically. Um, and so I'm going to tell you about what we think has been accomplished. Now, I have to put all these disclaimers on because I tend to be provocative and say things that other people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. And that's, that's kind of how I've made my career, quite frankly, I, because I like to find the truth and then tell the truth. And the truth is, is so different from what we do. We act as if the truth doesn't exist. And so I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, but some of the organizations I've been on before get upset when I, when I say things like that. One of the things I'm going to say, and, I, and I'm a lawyer, and one of the things I teach in law school is you always state your conclusions up front um, in case the judge cuts you off or whatever happens. And so this is one of my conclusions. Health is political with a small p. It's not partisan. I'm not talking about Republicans, Democrats. I'm talking about a definition of politics, which is the struggle over the allocation of scarce and precious social goods. And some people might quibble with that definition because they would rightly point out that we don't live in a country of scarcity. Um, but nonetheless, politics is a struggle. There are competing interests. And those that actually lose out in that struggle or don't have the ability to participate meaningfully are much less likely to get an equitable allocation of those precious goods. And in the case of health, those goods are things like a park in your neighborhood or a grocery store. And these things are just examples of the simple health protective resources that are not equitably distributed um, in our state or in our country. And so if health is political, it means that power matters. And I'm gonna to explain to you how we translate that. Power matters both at the individual level, everybody in this room has personal agency the ability to essentially achieve the purpose that you set your mind to. There's also agency at the family level and agency at the community level. 
and you can build agency, and it makes a huge difference in health. And then finally, health is not health care. And this is the most stubborn kind of false narrative that exists in the United States. And I'm going to show you some data that is overwhelming. It definitively proves that we've got the accent on the wrong syllable in this country. Um, where you live matters, and it matters a lot. And I'm going to try to prove that to you and then tell you how we translated that. And then finally, health is an investment. It is not an expenditure. Health care is an expenditure. Health is what you invest in to reduce the expenditures in health care. And unfortunately, we don't understand that in this country. We conflate health and health care all the time. And then finally, countries that have the strongest social contracts, or compact, whatever you want to call it, have the best health. And a social contract, you can tell a social contract because it's, it has policies in it that start with the word universal. Universal health care, universal child care, universal paid leave. Many, many developed countries in the world have enumerated policies that start with the word universal. The United States, it's hard to find even one. Okay, so I'm going to take you right into some of these results. If this clicker will agree with me, maybe I'll just press that. I want to tell you about Fresno, California. Okay, so Fresno, many of you know Fresno. And if you don't know Fresno, Fresno is, is kind of the Mississippi of California. Um, you know, it's the 20th Congressional District. At one point, it was the poorest Congressional District in the United States. Um, and it still ranks in the top five poorest uh, districts in the United States. It's also the breadbasket of California. It sits strategically in the middle of the state. It literally is middle of everything. I mean, it's three hours to Fresno from the north. It's three hours of Fresno from the south, particularly if you drive fast like I do. Um, it's the largest city in the Central Valley, but it is not an equitably laid out city. Uh, the northern part of Fresno compared to the southwestern part of Fresno, it's like two different worlds, two completely different worlds demographically, income-wise, physically. You, you couldn't see two as disparate places you know, that are so proximate really anywhere else in California. And so... One of the sites that I, you know, I showed you on that earlier map is Fresno. It's one of our Building Healthy Community sites. So we've been invested in Fresno for you know, what's approaching a decade now. It's 64% Latino. It's a poor place, as I mentioned, and it's a young place. A lot of young uh, people in Fresno. And I want to tell you about a couple campaigns. I showed you that earlier slide that had 1,000-plus wins. I want to take you a little deeper on some of these wins, the kinds of things that actually changed the potential trajectory of young people in a place like Fresno. And these are the things that actually contribute most to health. So um, Fresno County has, this is a nice simple one, a lot of uninsured people, or had a lot of uninsured people. Um, historically, more than 20% of Fresno County residents, including undocumented residents, lacked health insurance. So one out of five people in Fresno, no health insurance. Um, there was a shortage of health insurance options for undocumented people. Keep in mind that this is an agricultural community, as you all well know. Um, so many of the people living there are feeding us, literally, um, and our farm workers are working in associated agricultural industries. Um, a coalition of grassroots people funded by the Fresno Building Healthy Communities um, campaign decided that this was unacceptable, that having one in five people uninsured, and they, we saw the opportunity of the Affordable Care Act to actually dramatically increase insurance in Fresno. They put together this campaign called Health for All, um, which started as a hashtag, um, spread virally throughout the state, uh, so quickly and so forcefully that actually a legislator, Ricardo Lara, took it up and named a piece of legislation in California, uh, Health for All, 
which was to cover undocumented Californians um, in full scope Medi-Cal, which is our Medicaid program. And that's about 300,000 undocumented children across the state that would be eligible for full scope Medi-Cal. Um, in Fresno, they went gangbusters on enrolling people into the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it was, it was crazy. They had the most effective enrollment campaign in the state of California, doubled some of the next tier uh, enrollment campaigns. Um, they organized resident groups on the issue. They educated people. Um, they approached the Board of Supervisors. And you got to understand, Fresno is like being in the Deep South. The Board of Supervisors are staunch, hardcore Republicans, um, all male at the time, and very much uh, had this view of government as being a last resort for anything. The role of government in their mind had nothing to do with health care. And so, and Fresno had never had any significant contribution to coverage for uh, what, what used to be called indigent care in the state of California. Um, San Francisco has San Francisco General Hospital and Laguna Honda. Alameda County has Highland. And many of the Bay Area counties have substantial investments in caring for um, uninsured um, residents, including undocumented people. Fresno had never seen anything like that and was not interested in it. So these largely undocumented people organized themselves into a campaign to force the Board of Supervisors to hear this issue and refused to take no for an answer. Uh, they pressed the Board of Supervisors to establish a $5 million fund to cover the cost of health insurance for undocumented residents. That $5 million fund gets matched with both state and federal dollars. Um, and a couple of the local clinics that had been providing care for these um, undocumented people helped organize that care. And, and so the yellow bar there shows you where we were. The blue bar shows you where we are today. So 100,000 people, uh, households, now have insurance that didn't have insurance. 100,000, and this is just in Fresno. And 237,000 individuals now have health insurance and health coverage in Fresno that didn't have it before. So that's one of those wins that I'm talking about. Um, and the health insurance, uninsurance rate has been dropped and cut more than half uh, in Fresno. Also in Fresno, and the reason I'm doing this, I want you to, because I, I can't tell you about a thousand wins, but I can tell you about two or three in some detail. And that's what I'm gonna try to tell you about because you'd have to multiply this in your head across all of that footprint of building healthy communities and actually beyond because men, there's much spillover in this policy change that has happened beyond those sites. This is one that's particularly um, fulfilling to me. As I said, education is the single most important modifiable social determinant of health. It is the protector. Uh, it's, the, it's the field leveler. It's the, it's, the, it's the thing that allows us all to hope that we can actually pursue the American dream. And um, we didn't, when we first set out in building healthy communities, because we're a health foundation, we didn't think of education as being particularly relevant to our goals in health, except insofar as we thought kids need to be eating healthy food, they need to be getting good uh, physical activity in the schools, and they need to be getting good uh, health and reproductive education. So that was, it was more of a sort of a technical kind of, um, approach that we took to schools to try to enhance the health quality of, of food uh, activity and education. And so we sat in Fresno, a group of young people, we brought our board out there, we had a board meeting there, a group of young people uh, was brought in to present to the board about the issues that were impacting them. And they started talking about this notion of the school to prison pipeline. The fact that young people were being essentially criminalized for being late for school and getting truancy tickets, and um, you know, suspensions were being referred to the sheriff and to the Fresno police. And police were coming on campus to arrest kids, put them in handcuffs on school grounds. And these kids were being diverted into this juvenile justice pathway, and they would just disappear. And they would talk about their friends just disappearing from the school. They would just never see them anymore in the schools. And at first we were like, well, that's terrible. That sounds really awful, but it's not a health issue. Um, so we can't work on that. 
And these kids organized. And they came back at us through another board meeting we had in Merced a few years, actually a few months later. And they made another presentation about the school to prison pipeline. And finally, our board, you know, looked at us, the staff, and said, look into this. This, this, this sounds important. We looked into it. There are 800,000 kids being suspended and expelled in California every year in 2011. 800,000. And that was more kids than graduated. I mean, this was like routine. There were kids being suspended two, three, five, ten, fifteen times in a school year. Disproportionately black and brown kids and Native American kids, disproportionately boys. But across the board, suspensions were being used as sort of just the first step in any kind of discipline in the classroom. Kids were being pushed out. So we said, okay, well, we knew that one suspension before ninth grade makes it 30% less likely that you graduate high school. And so, and we know that graduation from high school is the only meaningful path to uh, a chance at participating in the 21st century economy. So we said, okay, well, this all sort of links to health. Because if you, can't, if you lose that link to opportunity, the likelihood that you can pursue a healthy life is significantly diminished. So we said, okay, this is a health issue. We got to start dealing with this. So we brought in some policy um, analysts and some advocates who'd been working on this issue for a long time, by the way. Uh, and they started to uh, generate some reports. We started to write some op-eds. Uh, we brought in the U.S. Department of Education Civil Rights Division to actually negotiate some consent decrees, which are agreements with some school districts that were disproportionately impacting uh, low-income kids of color with highly punitive suspension practices. Um, and we started mobilizing young people all across the state and connecting them. Ultimately, over 15,000 young people participated in some way in the school discipline reform um, efforts. Well, that made a big difference. In Fresno, which is, this thing is not working. I think the battery may be dead in this thing. Um, Fresno U Unified School District students were missing more than 32,000 days of school annually due to suspensions and expulsion. Just think about that for just for a second. 32,000 days of school. I mean, I remember missing one day of school <laughs> and feeling like I had I'd fallen off track. Like I didn't understand what was happening in algebra because I'd missed yesterday. Uh, what do we think these kids are doing when they're not in school? I mean, wh what do we think is happening to them? I mean, first of all, they're on the streets now so they're much more likely to engage in the kinds of behaviors that we suspended them for in the first place when they were actually in a supervised setting. Secondly, they frequently, frequently, frequently have a hard time catching back up. So they get on this trajectory, which is now lowered. Many suspensions were for this cause called willful defiance, which is basically a catch-all. It was like 93% of all suspensions were for willful defiance which was a catch-all for anything from putting your head down on the desk, wearing a baseball hat, you know, singing, having your ear pods or whatever they call those things uh, in your ear during the class. I mean, it was just like willful defiance, you're out. Um, and so these students recognized that this was essentially a regime, the zero tolerance regime that was essentially constructed to steer certain kids away from opportunity. And this is what I mean by this balance between risk and resources. They were being steered away from resources towards this risky criminal justice uh, system and disproportionately it was impacting kids of color. Okay, so this campaign conducted surveys, they, um, they had the students uh, push the school board to adopt restorative justice policies. I'm not, if somebody's interested in what restorative justice policies are, we can talk about that a little bit later. But it's a very different way to approach discipline in schools. And it, it essentially holds the offender accountable for repairing the harm in the moment rather than just pushing them out and saying, you know, you've offended, you're gone. Um, and the students uh, presented at the school board meetings and they organized... Long story short, suspensions have dropped dramatically uh, in Fresno. 
I'm going to show you some data a little bit later on the state of California from that 800,000. It's now down into the mid 300,000, still with a significant disproportionality. California has cut its suspension rate in more than half. During the same time, places like Florida have actually increased. Texas has increased. Um, this is a uniquely Californian phenomenon um, that's now starting to spread to other states. Uh, but this campaign started with a bunch of kids in Fresno talking to our board of directors. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Okay, last Fresno story. Um, this one I, I love too because it's not over. Um, this one is about uh, park equity. So if I had more time, I'd ask you to describe the neighborhoods in which you grew up um, because it matters. It matters where you grew up. You're forged in those young years in an environment that either kind of reminds you that you have potential and opportunity or basically reminds you that you're not valuable and you're not considered worthy of investment. And that is internalized. Both the positive is internalized and the negative is internalized. And it shapes people's trajectories in life. And it's intended to. I mean, we have in this country a history of apartheid. You know, the other side of the tracks, the bad neighborhood. We put people there that we don't like. We want them to feel devalued. We want them to do less well. That's, it's not a mystery. Okay, park equity in Fresno. This campaign, One Healthy Fresno, around parks or parks for all. There's a big disparity, as I mentioned, between North Fresno and South Fresno. That's a North Fresno park up there. That's one example of it. And the lower one is a South Fresno park. Um, so these young people did something that was extremely simple, um, and it turned out to be hilariously effective. They actually went to the city's master plan and read it. And in it, it described the disparity between North Fresno and South Fresno in parks per capita, a five-fold difference in parks per capita. So they took the actual city's general plan message and they put it on a bus. <laughs> and that bus drove around town just describing the exact findings that they had from the city's general plan. Well, this was fantastic, and they, they made a campaign around it. Um, they were all over the television news um, and newspapers, and they told this story over and over and over again, so much so that the mayor, who's actually turned out to be a friend of ours now, but uh, the mayor, Ashley Schweringen, um, she decided that they were going to take these bus posters down, that they were in violation of Fresno's ordinances because they were political. And the kids were like, how is it political to take the city's master plan and tell people about what's in the city's master plan? So this became very controversial. And there were editorial cartoons about this. You know, asking about, you know, I mean, she did them such a favor by trying to prevent them from actually having these bus shelters up. And in the end, uh, she had to concede. And they had to change um, their whole approach to how they were going to uh, invest in making the, the city's parks master plan um, equitable for all Fresnans. But they didn't stop there, the Fresno Building Healthy Communities folks. They decided that they didn't trust the city. So they actually went on a signature gathering campaign and they put on the ballot Measure P, which is a measure to dedicate some percentage of sales tax to investing in parks to actually remedy the inequity in Fresno. They got 52% of the vote, which was unheard of. 
But the city uh, attorney stipulated that this was a two-thirds measure against the will of the signature gatherers. So what did they do? <laughs> they sued. And in conjunction with a similar case that's happening in Oakland, one that's happening here in San Francisco, that's trying to read this case called Upland in California, which basically says if citizens put something on the ballot, it's not subject to the two-thirds requirement. It's only when the government puts something on the ballot. So that's going to the Supreme Court, and there's a very good chance that they'll win this case. This is from a bunch of undocumented, non-English-speaking, relatively new immigrant people who are fighting for their rights to create an environment of opportunity in Fresno, California. This is health. Okay, so I gave you three examples of those thousand wins. These are the kinds of things that are happening throughout this state. And I want to describe to you how California is doing something that nobody else is doing collectively. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And again, these are all the places where this work is happening. These are places that represent two-thirds of California's population. So I'm a simple person. Um, and I tell my staff all the time that if I don't know what I'm doing at all times, I get very upset and I start to cry. So I need frameworks that make sense about what, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? How is this helping? How is this adding up to something bigger? How is this impacting health? And so I came up with this framework that we call ABC. Again, it's for stupid people like me who need to know exactly what we're doing. The A stands for agency, which is power. And I talked to you about power being at both at the individual level as well at the community level. And I'm going to explain to you the data that supports uh, how agency is related to health. B stands for belonging. Belonging is very simply the opposite of racism. Belonging is being seen, being heard, being appreciated in your full humanity, being part of a beloved community that, that, that appreciates you for who you are and where your story is heard and told. And then C is very simple. C stands for changing the odds, as opposed to just helping people beat the odds. So the odds are man-made. The odds are largely constructed by policy, or in many instances, it's actually the absence of policy in the face of abject need. <coughs> and too often we have programs, for those of you who are listening on a podcast, I just did air quotes, <laughs> programs that essentially mitigate the harms of the larger structures that deny people access to meaningful opportunity. Those programs are charitable. They help reduce the pain, but they don't question the fundamental structures. They don't question inequity. So beating the odds is insufficient, as the video talked about. We have to change the odds, and that's what this work is really all about. Let me go a little deeper into agency. So agency is about power. We define it as the ability to use voice and power in community um, leaders to address power differentials, to achieve equity, and to build social, political, and economic power in a critical mass of residents in these places and elsewhere. A critical mass sounds like physics. It's actually less than 1% of people. It's amazing how, well, I shouldn't say easy, um, how feasible it is to move policy that's focused on equity and justice with organizing roughly 1% of people in a place. That's how weak our democracy is, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing for my purposes. Um, but our democracy is fragile, and it doesn't take much to actually, it doesn't take much of an organized voice to move ideas. Hopefully, none of my conservative enemies will hear me say that. Um, belonging is this idea of, essentially, there's a narrative in this country. And, you know, I used to do this talk quite a bit. Um, and it was harder to explain to people what belonging was until this last president got elected. 
And he is such the anti-belonging president. He just made my job so easy. I, I kind of appreciate him for that. I just point to him and say, that is not belonging. Um, so there's a dominant narrative in this country. And this, this country was built around apartheid. It was built around essentially, you know, some people mattered, some people didn't matter. It was white landowning men, you know, initially. And then it slowly expanded to other populations. But still, the legacy and the residue of that apartheid is, is littered throughout all of our systems. And that's why we have the other side of the tracks. That's why we have the inner city. That's why we have barrios. These are places where people have been pushed, reservations, Chinatowns, the like. We have separated people from opportunity very intentionally, and we've built that into the structures of our policies and our institutions. So we have to undo that, and that starts with changing the narrative about who belongs. And then finally, changing conditions. I sort of described that already. So I'm going to skip through this, but these are fundamental conditions of opportunity. We talk about health being uh, fundamentally about the environment in which you're raised, and those environments are shaped, as I said before, by risks on the one hand and resources on the other hand. And some, you know, I, I sometimes I refer to this work as being simple um, and not rocket science. But you have to understand one core principle of rocket science to understand this work. And that is that trajectories are shaped essentially by a gravitational pull downwards and then the sort of propulsion force upwards. And it's a balance of those two things that sets a trajectory. And there are people in this society that have higher gravitational pull downwards. They navigate society with essentially this constant force pulling them down. That's the risk in environments like Bayview Hunters Point or East Oakland or places where I went to medical school like East Baltimore, where you're constantly having to dodge risks. And the ability to essentially pursue meaningful opportunity and hold on to it is fleeting. So like rocket science, you have to understand trajectories. And the reason that we can predict how long somebody will live based on where they grew up is because of trajectories. And the other aspect of rocket science that's really critical to understand is that it's easier to change a trajectory early than it is late. So the things we do in early childhood uh, when kids are in K through 12 education have much better payoff than things that happen much later. Okay. So, there's this dominant narrative of exclusion that's you know, being perfected by our current president. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. You know, this notion of makers versus takers, or Mitt Romney's 47%. There's an in intentionality to that narrative. That narrative tends to exaggerate scarcity. It posits that we're in this zero-sum competition for limited resources. And, you know, if we give them some, it has to come from us. And it looks to the past with nostalgia. We had it all right in the 50s. The future is scary. They're coming. They're coming to take our stuff. That's a classic narrative of exclusion. And we're living in as acute a moment of that as at least I have ever seen in my lifetime. We think, though, California is driving a narrative of inclusion, which is almost the opposite. A narrative of inclusion does a, a handful of things. It, it not only changes the narrative, it changes the narrator. It lets people tell their own stories. It allows us to humanize ourselves through our shared stories, our shared experiences. Um, it also shows how we're inextricably intertwined in our mutual dependence. We need each other. We all do better when we all do better. And finally, it looks to the past with realism, and it looks to the future with hope. Okay, so that's the work of building healthy communities. We tell their real stories. We put real zip codes, real life expectancies, real zip codes, real high school graduation rates all over uh, the state. Um, we believe that place matters and that we can improve place. And place is not just where you live,
but it's a constellation of influences that shape people's trajectories in life. I just want to show you two last pieces of data, and then I'm going to conclude. And this is the one that sort of taught me that this work is absolutely critical. It came out of my experience working in, in East Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. And this question of, when it comes to your health in the United States, does your zip code matter more than your genetic code? And I set about trying to prove that when I was Alameda County Public Health Director. And for those of you who don't recognize the Bay Area in, in, you know, from Google Earth, that's San Francisco. This is Alameda County. It's shaped like a big boot, a boot that's trying to crush San Francisco unsuccessfully. <laughs> when you become the health officer of a county, you're the recorder of all births and deaths. You're literally the guardian of all of this great data. And, and you know, for data junkies like me, this is like nirvana. Uh, there are like 20,000 births in Alameda County every year, 10,000 deaths, and each of them has a certificate. And on that certificate, um, which ultimately at the time had to bear my signature, um, I used to say to people in Alameda County, you're not dead until I say you're dead. Um, you can tell what somebody died of, what their age was when they died, their race, ethnicity, and where they lived. And those four pieces of data across hundreds of thousands of death certificates, we looked at, we put a database together with about 450,000 deaths in it uh, over a period of over 50 years. They paint an incredible story of opportunity in a place. You can tell the story of a place just looking at the death certificates. And that's what we did. We took death certificates and we took the boot to Alameda County and we looked at every neighborhood in Alameda County and calculated on average how long somebody could expect to live in that neighborhood. And we started telling people, give me your address and I'll tell you how long you're going to live. And that was a controversial map. It ended up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, stimulated a lot of conversation amongst which was, hey, what the hell is happening in Alameda County? It seems like super inequitable. Um, those red areas are where people can only expect to live about 74 years. The yellow areas are about 74 to 80 years, and the green areas are greater than 80 years. We said it's not just Alameda County. We took our map. We went around the country. I went back to Baltimore, and in Baltimore, you have neighborhoods with life expectancies on the order of 58 years and other neighborhoods that are approaching 90 in the same city. So just hold that in your head for a second. This is the same Parks and Rec Department, the same school, you know, uh, administration. It's the same public works. So there are people living under the same regimes, having radically different experiences. I mean, it's the equivalent of living in Sweden and Afghanistan in the same city, the socio-ecological equivalent, in the same city. Now, you can't explain that by access to health care. In fact, the people living in the low life expectancy neighborhoods actually utilize healthcare at a much higher rate, which is actually logical. You can't explain it based on behaviors alone. You have to actually understand what's actually shaping those local microenvironments in those places. And at the end of the day, you're forced to confront differences in power. That's the difference. And that's what correlates with those life expectancy differences. So Baltimore, massive life expectancy differences across the city. We went to Cleveland, found a place called Huff in East Cleveland with a life expectancy of 61 years, and then Lindhurst, which is just down the street at 88.5 years. Uh, we went to Denver. We went to New York City. We went to Seattle. We went to L.A., Minneapolis, St. Paul, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, San Antonio, Chicago, everywhere we looked. And I'm still looking. I'm looking in Canada now. I'm looking in, in New Zealand. We're looking in Western Europe. Everywhere we look in the United States, you find life expectancy differences at a minimum 12 to 15 years, maximum approaching 30 years uh, in the United States. This is the American pattern. This is apartheid red in life expectancies. This is the manifestation of that. The second piece of data I want to show you um, is equally compelling, at least to me. Um, you've seen this before. This is per capita spending on health care in the United States compared to other so-called OECD countries, other uh, developed countries. And whenever you make this graphic, you have to change the axis of the graph to fit the United States on with the rest of the world. Because on a per capita basis, per person basis, 
we spend roughly twice what the rest of the developed world spends on healthcare. So that's not news, although it's shocking, it's not news. Two female health services researchers, and I think it's significant that they're female, because they decided to do something that all the guys for 40 years never decided to do. And they took that per capita spending on health care, and they added to it per capita spending on social benefits and social services. Because in their minds, they thought, well, health isn't just health care. Health has a lot to do with the environments and the opportunities that you have. So they tried to actually mathematically show that. And they did this very simple analysis. Um, now the United States is no longer the big spender. We're the stupid spender. We're no longer the big spender. We have the accent on the wrong syllable, as I mentioned, disproportionately spending on health care, the expenditure, and underinvesting in social benefits and social services. That's the fundamental investment that produces health. And so these two women, Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor, published this as an op-ed in the New York Times. It got so much attention that they decided they had to write a book. It's called The American Healthcare Paradox. And it has radically reshaped our thinking about what it is that society needs to invest in in order to produce better health outcomes. And so they showed that for the OECD countries, other developed countries, roughly for every dollar spent on healthcare, roughly $2 is spent on social services slash social benefits. In the United States, for every dollar we spend on healthcare, we spend about 55 cents on social services and social benefits. So we literally have the, the opposite, the inverse proportion compared to the rest of the developed world. And they showed that that two to one ratio was roughly the right ratio for optimizing health status in the respective countries. This is, this is now very well understood, so well understood, in fact, and I, I like to joke about this because these were two women who did this brilliant thing, who deserved the Nobel Prize, and all these guys got kind of mad and said, you know, they couldn't possibly be right. So they enlisted Rand to repeat the study and try to prove that this, we couldn't have missed this for 40 years. There's no way these two ladies got this right. Well, Rand redid it, included more countries, included each of the 50 states in the United States. And they concluded not only were they right, they were more right than they even thought they were. <laughs> and this is just some data showing, you know, that uh, orange line on the top is essentially social spending in the European Union. Um, that sort of dark blue line that parallels that below that is social spending in the United States. But the significant one is the light orange line that goes up from the bottom to the top, that's life expectancy in the European Union. And then that light blue line is life expectancy in the United States. And you see in 1980, we were roughly the same place as the rest of the developed world. And over the past 30 or so years, we've actually diverged. And that's what the video shows, that we're, we're actually in free fall. Our life expectancy is in free fall compared to the rest of the world. Um, most people don't know that. Um, but it's true, and it's been true for 30 years. But they also said in their conclusions, and I have to take my glasses off to read some of these. I, I love these conclusions because it's Rand, and Rand is like, you know, super quantitative, super numerical, super male. Um, <laughs> higher levels of social spending are strongly associated with better health. The association is particularly strong for public, i.e. government spending, as opposed to private social spending. The association between social spending and better health strengthens over time. Social factors such as income inequality and social capital, a measure of how much people trust each other in a population, are associated with health outcomes. The, social, uh, the association between social spending and health outcomes is strongest where income inequality is greatest. Hello, we have the highest income inequality in the developed world. Uh, in other words, social protections may be even more important for health outcomes in more unequal societies. So here's Rand giving us basically a blueprint for rethinking how we invest in health. So that's what building healthy communities is about. We, we have a simpler model to sort of talk about this. We have what I learned in medical school, which is the medical model, which basically says that bad people, people behaving badly, smoking, drinking, driving without a seatbelt, doing all these sorts of things that are known to be risky, are more likely to get disease and therefore more likely to die prematurely. So 
we spend $3.7 trillion a year in 15-minute interventions in cubicles trying to get people to behave differently and try to tinker with their genes. And quite frankly, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And to the extent that it does work, it would work a lot better if we actually had invested in some prevention on the front end so we could take the burden off the downstream healthcare delivery system. So what we argued is that the medical model is true, but it's not sufficient. You also have to look at the larger socio-ecological model, which goes back to this notion of a set of beliefs, this narrative of exclusion versus a narrative of inclusion, which creates policies like separating children at the border, which creates neglected communities or conditions like children in cages that have profound downstream health consequences. And believe me when I tell you that in this country we're going to be dealing with the mental health, physical health, psychological health consequences of young people who were caged as children at the border and separated from their parents. These will have lifelong, if not intergenerational, uh, impacts. All right, so I'm going to conclude with this last slide um, and just talk about where we are today. We're facing an exclusionary narrative which creates a weak social contract, the lack of universal policies, which creates profound social vulnerability. Not just for people of color, we're seeing this profound increase in white premature death. Uh, profound. And, and we can talk about that. It's on the scale of the entire U.S. HIV AIDS epidemic. It's over half a million excess deaths amongst white people in this country over the past 20 plus years. And so that's where we are today. We think that where California is pointing is a narrative of inclusion and belonging. We're reweaving our social contract and we're creating stronger and resilient communities. I'm gonna stop there and thank you for your attention and time and really happy to take any questions. And we have... <clears throat> I'm gonna... Um, we have three questions that are all basically the same question, but let's answer... Let's, here's the, the simplest one of them. Can we download the video and PowerPoint from the website? Yes. It's actually on YouTube. It's called Tale of Two Zip Codes. You can okay. look it up. And then um, this next question is put three different ways, but it's um, people want to know uh, now in year nine, what will be your next 10-year uh, plan focus on? But let me, let me put that a different way. But um, No, I'll, I'll let you. I'm going to read them individually. Okay. Go ahead. I actually have slides on that. So oh, I'm gonna, okay. I'm going to... Um, just skip forward to oh, and, those. And Dr. Wright, and we've got about maybe about six or seven minutes. Okay. And then if we don't get to all of them, we'll um, speak out in the lobby when we're done. Okay. So let me, let me just um, summarize it. Okay. So what we learned over 10 years and a billion dollars um, was a lot, actually. It was really quite... Um, and I, I, tell, I tell my, my folks that this is like a height of my career. I mean, I don't think it gets any better than this. I mean, it's just like, you know, we got to do something that was pure, you know, that was really focusing on the root causes of, of poor health and racial inequity in this state and country. And we got to organize people that, you know, were non-English speaking, formerly incarcerated, LGBTQ and trans, you know, who were experiencing sort of the brunt of exclusion in the society. And we got to witness them change policy in a way that creates equity for all of us. So it was, it, it was life-changing for me, and I could talk about this all day. But we're still a $3.7 billion foundation, so we can actually do something in the next 10 years that actually learns from what we did in the first 10 years. And what we've learned, and it's distilled in this slide, is that in order to improve health, you have to invest in people power the A of agency. You have to build social, political, and economic power on a critical mass of people. Um, and that almost by itself, almost by itself, is the fuel that propels equitable change. We think that we also have to look at those core institutions, the criminal justice system, education, land use, and the health systems, that create barriers 
for low-income people that we saw in our Building Healthy Communities work, that these systems really, and there's well-meaning people in all of these systems, I'm in some of them, but the systems themselves are products of the status quo and a set of inputs that essentially was not designed essentially to invest in people. And we need to reimagine those institutions. And we can reimagine those institutions only through engaging the people that are being served by those institutions to hold those systems accountable for equitable outcomes. And then finally, we have to finally get to our 21st century health system, which is focused on health and not just on disease. And so that's what we're planning on doing going forward. We're, we're honing in on those things and building healthy communities that we saw as incredibly powerful fuel for change. And we're doubling, and in some cases, tripling down on those things. Well, this next question um, kind of feeds into the one, something that you just said. Um, she says, I serve on one of the Healthy Richmond action teams. Yay. I am passionate about the work, but also tired. What have you learned from the various hubs? Excuse me, I got to flip this. Hubs about keeping up with momentum for the past nine years. These are long campaigns and need to keep going. Yeah. So this is like, you know, there's good news for me and presumably for you too in this, um, although it's not official good news. Um, and that is that, you know, we, we've committed, you know, I showed you the map of those 12 counties with the 14 places that represent 67% of California's population. We've decided as we move forward, we're, we're, our, our principle is we're not leaving any power on the table. We're going to build from that platform of those building healthy communities places and try to grow the footprint to capture more impact across other parts of the state. So, so whereas when we started this, we thought we would just like sort of pull up stakes in those places after 10 years and say, hey, go for it. You're on your own now. Uh, we recognize that that doesn't make any sense. It's, this is uh, power that has been built that we can leverage to grow this work in California. Okay. Uh, there's like four more questions, but they're amazing questions. I'm hoping maybe we can fit them all in. Um, many low-income people in California use Medi-Cal. With the redefinition of public charge, uh, this may prevent them from seeking health care. Is the California Endowment looking at how to keep the public charges now self-pay for Medicare instead of using Medi-Cal? The second part of the question, I'm not sure I fully understand, but I'll, I'll tell you on public charge, um, you know, we create, we helped foster a campaign. First of all, we put a, a full page ad in the New York Times with a bunch of other foundations about public charge uh, a few months ago. We enlisted uh, our networks to deliver 260,000 um, comments to the federal government, um, you know, during the comment period for the public charge rule. Um, and now states are suing. We're assisting that in, in some quiet and ways um, to essentially uh, reverse this rule because it's, it's inequitable. The goal is to just slow it down, gum up the works, not allow it to proceed um, because the impacts are, are horrific um, if, you, if you think about the consequences of that. Not, you know, we're not talking about undocumented people now as worthy as they We're talking about legal immigrants you know, who come to this country and maybe fall on some hard times and need to get some housing assistance or whatever now being, and, and not only whether you've used these public services, but if you are likely to use these public services. I mean, this rule is draconian. So our goal is to stop it at all costs or to at least slow it down till we have political cycles that will allow for smarter legislating. Okay. What are your thoughts about cooperative economics as a tool for building power for marginalized communities? Thumbs up. Okay. Well, that was a quick answer. <laughs> um, I think you've answered this one. Um, only three more, uh, including this one. There are 14 communities shifting... Um, have the 14 communities shifted the culture of disparity well enough to sustain and build upon the efforts for another 10 years, belonging, power, change? I believe you already answered that one I, for the most I, part. I, I, we hope so. We think so. And we're going to be with these communities going forward in some capacity. Okay. Um, two more. This one's interesting. We are RNs in the Tenderloin, and our employer at nonprofit announced they're closing our clinic one day after the employees came out with efforts of organizing um, an affiliate. 
I'm sorry. Uh, okay, there you go. Will the California endowment, I like this, this is a gutsy question. <laughs> Will the California endowment consider buying our clinic <laughs> so we can continue uh, sowing and reaping your ABCs? Every <laughs> one of us believes in inhabits your mission. There you go. Are you going to buy their clinic? <laughs> the answer is no. Um, <laughs> But we definitely will talk and help uh, help you align yourself with some folks that can help you, um, you know, buy your clinic. We do have a, a, a impact investing program, which actually lends money to organizations that, you know, are either building or, or, or buying, uh, you know, their, their property. So and these are like zero or very low interest loans. And there's a large statewide fund that actually makes these funds available. So it was a question worth asking then. Last question. Um, well, most of the examples are within the um, culture. I country. I'm sorry. Capitalism. Uh, the, uh, of ca I heard red capitalism. The what is that word right there? Countries. Countries of capitalism. I'm sorry. What about um, countries or counties that have a social uh, countries socialist method of economic system? Any um, comparison. And any comparisons? Okay. Yeah, I love that question. This is not a one-minute question at all. Um, I just I want to point out because you know some people think that the U.S. is the only capitalist country in the world, and I want to point out that you know Sweden's a capitalist country, Denmark's a capitalist country, you know Canada's a capitalist country, and they all have managed to create strong social contracts in spite of being capitalist. And I think the difference between us and them is that we conflate capitalism with democracy. Um, so we don't have checks on capitalism because we let capitalism essentially, you know, corporations be people and have those that full spectrum of rights. So we we facilitate rapacious capitalism in this country willingly. It's why we don't have universal health care because it's not profitable to uh, provide universal health care. So, so I do think that um, capitalism is not the problem. I think it's American capitalism that is the problem. I want to just conclude, yeah. though, just by saying that I, I, I want us all to at least appreciate how unique and successful California has been. We put five million people into health insurance, you know, under the Affordable Care Act. Five million, more than any other state, more than most of them combined. We got a million people eligible to reclassify their low-level felonies as misdemeanors and not have to check the box on housing applications or employment applications under Prop 47 and 57. I mentioned we have 300,000 undocumented kids that are now covered under full-scope Medi-Cal. We've actually increased the age to now 26 to make it a parity with the Affordable Care Act. We have 400,000 fewer suspensions and expulsions at a minimum across the state, across our school districts. I mean, I could go on. We've eliminated cash bail. California is on the move. California is building an inclusive narrative that's driving inclusive policy that's changing conditions for our most marginal people. We have to keep up the pressure in California to show the United States what an inclusive democracy really looks like. Oh, so on that note, <laughs> um, we'd like to all thank um, Dr. Eiten for his comments here today. We also thank our audience. We thank our audience here as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 114th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.